Please stand with me for the reading of scripture. This morning, the passage comes from Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 10. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Anne-Marie, for reading that uh, great Christmas passage, uh, one of the classics that we turn to every December during Advent. Well, actually, as a church, we've been walking through this book of Hebrews together, and uh, we've finally gotten to this part where we're actually going to explore who Melchizedek is after, you know, hinting around at it for a couple of weeks. But before we do that, I, I just wanted to make some observations about Advent as a season itself as we've walked through it together as a church over the last four Sundays. You know, I, I knew it, but I don't know that I experientially felt it, how Advent is a season of longing. Normally, I might say that Advent is a season of longing for winter to be over, though maybe we're longing for winter to begin. Um, I know I'm already longing for the nights to be shorter, for the days to be longer. I, I'm longing for spring to come, for the ground to warm up, for new life to come out. I'm, I'm longing for Jesus to return as we've moved through this series. I've been longing to get some really great deals on some really sweet stuff. I, I've been wearing this, uh, this Fitbit since July so that I had a way to quantify my laziness and keep track of exactly how sedentary I'm being on a daily basis, uh, for which it's very helpful. But in early November, I thought about upgrading to an Apple Watch Series 4, which I've heard is the ultimate wearable fitness tracker. And if you know me, you're probably not surprised. I really had a crisis over this, like, because I kept just going back and forth about, oh, could I buy one? Could I justify it? Could, could I not? It's like, I want to buy the watch, but I can't justify the, the price, but, but it, it, I really wanted it, but I never spent that much on a watch, but I could break it up into 18 easy monthly payments. But, but my phone works fine, but they look so cool and super helpful, but my wife thinks they're ridiculous and she's not wrong. And, 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 but I would look cool wearing one and... It, and, and, and literally every day I went back and forth until the moment of truth, which is Black Friday. It's the cheapest it's going to get is that, that weekend. If, if, if ever I was going to buy one, that's, that was the day. Am I buying one or not? Sitting on the couch at Jenna's parents' house with my laptop up going, am I buying this or not? And I decided no. Hold for applause. 
Thank you. I got a round of applause in the, uh, the first hour, so I, I, not now, not yet anyway. Maybe next year when the new model comes out and, and I, can, I can justify it. Um, any Apple Watch owners feeling really judged right now? Johnny? Yeah? Okay. I noticed you raised your watch hand there so everybody could see it. Yeah, Series 3, it's not the new one. Don't be jealous. Now, my real moment of epiphany happened about a week, week and a half later. Because, you know, Black Friday came and went, I decided, no, I'm not buying this thing. And about a week, week and a half later, I realized, I haven't thought about that watch in days. None of the existential turmoil going on inside of my gut, do I buy this or not, none of it hadn't even crossed my mind in seven, eight, nine, ten days. And it's not because I made a decision and then stuck with it, because that's not the kind of person I am. But uh, I realized I stopped thinking about buying it once they stopped advertising it to me. Black Friday was passed. There were no, it wasn't showing up on must-have Black Friday deals list anymore. It wasn't showing up on the top tech toys from 2018 that you need to buy in order for people to think you're cool and like Johnny and stuff like that. It just, it, it wasn't showing up on that regular basis for me to, you know, feel like I need this in order to be the person that God has called me to be. Now, I know that advertising works by showing me sort of an ideal future me that I could be if only I were to trade a few hundred measly little dollars for the good or the service that they're offering. I know that's, that's how it works. It shows me this future version of myself that is doing backflips with water coming off of me and the watch displayed prominently or who's running or who's like good at basketball. And so these are all things I want to be. And if I would just buy the watch, $500 and I could be eternally happy. It seems like a great deal, right? Nope. <laughs> Well, okay, obviously when we put it that blatantly, no. Owning an Apple Watch is not the key to happiness. And yet, when you see the ad, when you imagine what the future would be like, it works on us. It works on me in some, I don't really know how to describe it, but it taps into some, I don't know, primal desire or discontent or longing or just sometimes maybe you're familiar with that overpowering desire to just Buy whatever it will take to make yourself feel happy or at peace. If, if, I could, if I could buy that watch, maybe I could become the version of myself that doesn't feel like I'm lacking somehow. Maybe I could finally be at peace. You know, one of the main things that draws groups of people together into a culture, into a shared uh, idea, is that, that shared understanding of what it means to be happy, what it means to find the good life, uh, what it means to find peace. The Greeks called it eudaimonia, the Latins called it beatitudo, uh, Confucius called it the Tao, the Jews called it shalom, we call it the pursuit of happiness. But on and on and on, every culture has its shared sense of what's the purpose of human life? What am I here to try to achieve? What does it look like to be happy, to be at peace? And Christmas, Advent, pretty obvious time uh, if you're doing a little bit of cultural exploration to understand what exactly it is that Americans say you need to do to be happy. Buy. Own have, possess, to be happy is to have 
stuff. So it's no wonder that Americans have 3% of the world's children and 40% of the world's toys. That's how you're happy, is by having the stuff. Now, of course, if we could peel back the advertising hype for a little while, we, we may ask ourselves those, these questions. Does the purchase and possession of material goods, does it really satisfy, or am I just feeding, like hitting a dopamine trigger to make myself feel good? Does the path to the good life inexorably lead through Black Friday? Is happiness found in the acquisition and collection and enjoyment of things? Will I finally be at peace if I just have everything on that list of top 10 tech toys of 2018? Well, the story of Melchizedek tells us no. And like I said, as a church, we've been, we've been walking through the book of Hebrews together, and we tried to line some stuff up so that it would hit these seasons in a way that kind of made sense. And so throughout Advent, we've been talking about Jesus as our great high priest, the greatest of all high priests. And, and the author of Hebrews is exploring this idea, this understanding of Jesus as the great high priest through the lens of the priestly order of Melchizedek. And he's hinted at it a couple times. Jesus is a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Speaking of that, I want to talk about something else. And then he comes back to Jesus, the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. But before we go there, let me talk about something else for a minute. So we've been kind of bouncing, uh, hinting at this guy for the last couple of weeks, and we're finally taking a few minutes here uh, at the beginning of chapter 7 to, to dig into it. Who is this guy? Who is Melchizedek? What does it mean that he's a priest or that he has a priestly order? How is that uh, important for our understanding of who Jesus is and then who we are in Jesus? Now, today's passage, the first 10 verses of chapter 7, we're going to take the time to understand who Melchizedek is, go over the story again, understand a little bit of how he uh, sees a reflection or a shadow of Jesus in Melchizedek. And then next week, Pastor Tom is going to lead us through more of a deeper dive into why that's important, the theological implications of Jesus as a great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So today, we're jumping into who is this guy? It's Hebrews chapter 7, like I said, if you need to grab the Bible under the seat in front of you, or even if you don't need to, but you want to, it's on page 1190, uh, so you can see the text and follow along. Or if you've got one of these uh, little Hebrews journals, it's on page 24, big number 7. Now, as we dive into the story of Melchizedek and begin to spend the next couple of weeks there, today, we're going to see some interesting parallels between... Melchizedek and Jesus. Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, and Jesus, the king of righteousness, the king of peace. And see how Melchizedek is portrayed by the author of Hebrews as a shadow of the king to come, of the king who has come, the king who is coming again, the king who can finally bring us peace. If you're ready, let's jump in. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. Who is Melchizedek? Who is this guy? For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. And that's all that he tells us about Melchizedek. I think our author, the author of the book of Hebrews, is a history guy. He's familiar with these Old Testament characters. He knows, he knows Genesis. He knows the Psalms. And he refers back to a person who only shows up once in the story. 
three verses in Genesis 14. That's it. And then he's referenced again in Psalm 110. But this guy only shows up once, only three verses, and um, he basically assumes we know everything about him that there is to know. So rather than making that assumption this morning, I'm going to kind of rehash or go over again the, the story of Melchizedek. So we're all on the same page. Melchizedek shows up not too long after Abraham has left his homeland and, and moved into the promised land, the, the land that God uh, said he was going to deliver to him. You know, God said, rise up, go to this place that I will show you. Well, this is where he went. So Abraham goes, he's got his household with him. Now, when we think household, of course, we think, uh, I don't know, if you add up my parents and their kids and spouses and all that, it's like 18. So we're not thinking of too many people. Abraham probably had around 1,000. Not all related to him, obviously. These were the men, women, children who essentially worked with and for and around him. He would attract people together to, to take care of flocks, herds, bake, cook, clean, whatever, all of it. So about a thousand people are working uh, around Abraham. They all make this transfer, maybe pick some up along the way. But anyway, they're, they're there. And he's come with Lot, his nephew. Uh, Lot also has a large family with him, a large household, and they decide the land can't sustain both of these large families, so they need to split up. Abraham says to Lot, he's still Abram at this time, Abram says to Lot, you choose first, and Lot chooses the good portion to the south uh, and settles in a fortified city called Sodom where there's plenty of room around for him to sustain and grow his flocks and his herds and also the safety of that fortified city for him to retreat to if necessary. Abraham ends up a little bit farther north in kind of a desert oasis. Not as easy to eke out a living there, but he's going to take a shot at it. Now, they're not the only ones living in this land. There's other small towns. The Bible calls them kings. They're basically mayors of small little fortified towns um, kind of sprinkled around them. And they don't always get along. There's, if, if you're, you know, thinking of Israel as this, tall rectangle, um, and Lot's here, and Abraham's here. Well, there's a bunch of kings right around in this area, five of them or so, and there's these four other kings up here who, for over a decade, have been sending raiding parties down and exacting tribute from these guys and then taking it back. These guys down here are like, yeah, we've had enough of that, and these guys up here are like, no, you haven't. And so they come back down with more raiding parties and sack a couple of towns along the way, and then they go out, four kings against five, line up and just utterly defeat the five kings. One of those kings was the king of Sodom, which is where Abraham's nephew Lot lives. Now, when you go raiding like that and you, you defeat a small town, you get to take whatever you want with you. So anything valuable that's portable gets hauled away. All the gold, all the jewels, all the food, water, whatever you could carry, it all gets hauled back with them. But they also take captives, usually women and children, older men or anybody they feel like they can, they can control. So they take them from these five towns and start heading back north. Now they're moving more slowly this time around because they've got all these extra animals and people with them. And somebody manages to escape and runs over to where Lot is, or to where Abraham is, excuse me, and says to Abraham, hey, here's what's happened and your nephew Lot they've taken. And Abram basically says, ain't nobody got time for that. And he gets together his uh, fighting men, his army, or what passes for an army in those days, uh, essentially whoever can handle a, a spear or a cudgel or a couple of swords and who's relatively fit enough to run across the desert for a couple of days. So he gets together his fighting men, 318 of them, 
uh, Genesis tells us, plus the, the fighting guys for the three powerful nomads that Abraham is allied with. So he's got this small army. He's going north. They're moving quickly. They catch up with the raiding parties as they're going back home. They catch up with them. Abraham divides his forces into two. They flank them from both sides. And the way battles kind of work then is, is you would come around, start attacking, kill a few, and after, after a bit of that, they would just turn and run. Okay, so these raiding parties turn and run, and then you chase them. You pursue them for about as long as you can sustain, hacking down the stragglers as you go, knocking people on heads, things like that, until they've run far enough that you can say, we won, and turn around and go back without worrying about them turning around and chasing you. So, Abraham, it's, it's, it's a huge victory. The author of Hebrews calls it somewhat euphemistically the slaughter of the kings. Uh, it's, it's a great victory. He recaptures all the, all the stuff, all the valuables, all the animals, all the people, and begins heading back south. It's as he's heading back south that they pass a place called Salem. It'll eventually be known as Jerusalem. They pass this small, t- this small town, this small city, and Melchizedek shows up. Let me read the story, these three verses from Genesis 14. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that's all we know about Melchizedek. Three verses in Genesis 14. It's the only time in the Genesis narrative where he shows up. And actually, if you took out those three verses, the story continues without them and makes absolutely perfect sense. So the author of Genesis who told us this story, even though he doesn't give us much, wants us to see something, understand something from the way the Melchizedek story is told. So a couple of observations. Let's see if we can kind of suss this out together. First, we can tell Melchizedek is a powerful and probably wealthy individual, not just as the king mayor of this fortified town of Salem, but also because he has enough food, bread and wine. It's kind of a stock phrase for food, like we would say meat and potatoes. He has enough bread and wine to resupply Abraham's 318 guys, plus the fighting men of the other three kings. So he's able to bring it out. He's, he's, he's got some, some money. He's, he's well off. Second... Abraham seems to already know him. In the rest of the story, uh, Abraham refuses any help from the king of Sodom, but immediately takes supplies and receives a blessing from the king of Salem, from Melchizedek. And there's, there's kind of a hint in the narrative there that they, are, that they know each other at least. Uh, Melchizedek, of course, being in the general area where Abraham lived, it makes sense that they would know one another and probably have a shared affinity based on their worship of the same one true God. Because, third, we're told Melchizedek is priest of God Most High. Priest of God Most High, and it's interesting when when, uh, Melchizedek invokes a blessing on Abram, he doesn't use Abram's covenant name for God. He doesn't use Yahweh, he uses the name for God, El Elyon, which means God Most High, about his power. Melchizedek doesn't know God in the context of God's covenant with Abraham. It doesn't mean his relationship is any less real or any less legitimate, but it it is a little different. Abraham was chosen singly, but there were others who knew this God, Melchizedek being one of them, being a priest of God Most High. 
And fourth, and probably most significant, Melchizedek comes into the story with no background information and no conclusion to his story. Everybody who's anybody in Genesis, in Old Testament narrative in general, is introduced with a genealogy. You know, this is the part you usually skip when you're reading through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, whatever. You're like, and a long list of names. But that's significant to the Jewish mind because a, a person's identity is wrapped up in who they're descended from. So every significant player in Jewish history has a genealogy. And not only do they have a genealogy, but they also have a record of death. And they lived such and such a number of years, had so-and-so children, and then he died. We don't get that from Melchizedek. We get, we get nothing about a father, a mother, no genealogy, uh, no summary of his life, no death, no nothing but this. Which one commentator says, well, if we're going to argue something significant about Melchizedek, it's a significant, it's an argument from silence, which is true. But if you expect noise, silence is significant. And the fact that Melchizedek just shows up and then disappears should lead kind of the astute Old Testament reader to go, oh, that's interesting. Who is this guy? Especially when you think about it in light of Psalm 110, which we'll talk about more next week when, when Tom preaches. Now, what do we know about Melchizedek? He shows up in kind of an odd way, which must mean something. He's the priest of God Most High, and he's so great that even Abraham submitted himself to Melchizedek. Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, Abraham, the greatest Israelite who ever lived, submitted himself to Melchizedek. This guy's significant. So who is he? Well, that brings us to sort of the interpretation question. When we read the Genesis 14 story of Melchizedek, how are we supposed to understand this? He gets those three verses in Genesis, and it's just enough that a lot of people have come up with some really whack ideas about who this guy is. Uh, in Judaism at the time of Jesus, some saw uh, Melchizedek as the leader of the angels in heaven engaged in war against the forces of darkness. So he's got that going for him. Others saw Melchizedek as the one who would come down from heaven and rescue God's people from the devil himself. Um, that'd be cool. Others uh, see Melchizedek as a title more than a name, and so then they try to figure out, well, exactly who is he? Which Old Testament character is this guy known as the king of righteousness, Melchizedek? Uh, and then he could, be Shem, uh, he could be Shem, or he could be Noah, or he could be Mephibosheth, or he could be whoever. You know, we just, conspiracy theories abound. Actually, even in the church, uh, there's been a bit of a temptation to take the Melchizedek figure and sort of expand his role and his importance. Um, the actually primary interpretation of Melchizedek throughout church history has been that he is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself. That is, before Jesus became a baby in the manger in Bethlehem, he showed up as in many places, one of them being this guy Melchizedek, that it was actually Jesus himself coming with the communion elements, bread and wine, uh, to offer to Abraham. With all due respect, that's probably pushing the biblical evidence a little too hard. Because as far as the historical biblical evidence is concerned, Melchizedek was a guy. 
Sorry to disappoint, but he was, he was just a guy. He was a king mayor of a small but powerful town. He served as, as a mediator, as a priest between God Most High and his, the people who lived in that area, including Abraham. But he's introduced in this really weird, odd, symbolic way in the Old Testament. And maybe that means something. The author of Hebrews knows his Old Testament, he knows his psalms. He knows the stories about Israel's greatest father, uh, Abraham. So he's thought about this Melchizedek guy. He's thought about the odd way that he's introduced in Genesis. The, the mention of Melchizedek having an eternal priesthood. It shows up in Psalm 110. And as he's thinking about that and thinking about Jesus and Jesus' own priestly work on our behalf, offering a sacrifice for sins once for all, he starts to see some parallels between Melchizedek and Jesus. There's some similarities, almost as if one of them is a shadow being cast by the other. So he begins to spell some of them out for us here. First, he, he points out the meaning of Melchizedek's name. Remember in Hebrew, actually in most languages, names mean something. They have, they have a meaning to them, which is significant as it describes the person's character. So Melchizedek comes from two Hebrew words, meaning king and righteousness. So Melchizedek is the king of righteousness. See how that works? It's pretty cool. And then he says, and also he's the king of Salem. Salem, shalom, peace, king of peace. He's the king of righteousness, which, by the way, if you're thinking of naming your child king of righteousness, just be aware that is a pretty heavy burden to, to bear for a child. But he, he's named king of righteousness he serves as the king of peace. Huh. That's interesting. We keep going. Verse 3, he's without father or mother or genealogy. Doesn't have beginning of days or end of life. Sounds like somebody else that I've heard of. See, the, the author of Hebrews is putting a kind of a symbol-laden literary spin on the actual historical figure of Melchizedek, which is totally legit to do. He's basically saying, look, as far as we're told in Genesis, Melchizedek is the uncreated, eternally existing king of righteousness, king of peace, who serves continually as a priest, as a mediator between God and mankind. And you can kind of picture him writing this out and sort of tilting his head a little bit and being like, who does that remind you of? I've been talking about him for seven chapters. Who does that remind you of? And so he just makes it clear. And resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever, or he serves as a priest continually. Resembling the Son of God. Notice he doesn't say being the Son of God, as if Melchizedek really is a, like a pre-baby Jesus showing up. Nor does he say that Jesus resembles Melchizedek. And I know that sounds like a minor point, and I'm being a little pedantic, but it, it is important. Melchizedek resembles Jesus, not the other way around. Melchizedek is the shadow. Jesus is the substance. What Melchizedek is by symbolic interpretation of the Genesis story, Jesus actually is. What Melchizedek is literarily Jesus is literally. 
I feel like the, the author of Hebrews is making this emotionally powerful move. He's reading backwards from Jesus into the Old Testament and seeing hints and signs and shadows of Jesus everywhere. A couple weeks ago, I started rewatching one of my favorite TV shows. And I've seen the whole series a couple of times, so I know where the series is going. I know where the characters are going. I know how they develop. I know, you know when characters are going to disappear from the story, when new ones are going to come on uh, into the story. And I know ultimately where these characters end up. And this time around, it's been fascinating, as I've noticed in the first couple of seasons, how early things start getting dripped in that get paid off later. Things that I missed the first time around because I didn't know the ending. Now that I know the ending, I can see how the beginning is a shadow of the ending to come. And that's, that's what the author of Hebrews is doing with the entire Old Testament. He's rereading it in light of Jesus, and he's seeing parallels and connections and shadows just everywhere. And what he's seeing has huge implications for the Jewish system of worship. Uh, we're going to dig into that again a, a little bit more next week, but I'll summarize just briefly the foundation that he is laying for the argument to come in the rest of chapter 7 that Tom's going to lead us through next week. Uh, look at verse 4. This is kind of the main point of this paragraph. See how great this man, Melchizedek, was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, gave a, a tithe of what he had, he'd gotten. See, we know, we, we take it for granted, Abraham is great. He's the greatest, greatest Jew who's ever lived. So if Abraham willingly submitted himself to Melchizedek, how much greater must Melchizedek be? And given that Melchizedek is that much greater, how much greater then is the priesthood that comes from him? Jesus is a great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, I know, so today we don't, we don't usually think of jobs sort of running in the family or belonging to a family. Uh, we call that nepotism. But in most of the world, for most of time, who you were and what you did was inextricably linked. Right, so the, the Coopers made barrels. The Smiths worked the forge, the Millers owned the flour mill, the Bakers worked in the bakery, the Carters used carts to transport stuff from one place to another. Uh, the Macy's manufactured maces, those heavy clubs made to deal death by blunt force trauma. <laughs> in the story of Israel, once God had established the priesthood, it stayed in the family. It stayed in the family, it belonged to the family. By law, by birthright, the Levites, the descendants of Levi, controlled the priesthood. Okay, by birthright, they were the priests, and by law, they had the authority to exact a tithe, a tenth, a tribute from people. That was, that was their paycheck, it's how they lived. So by birthright, they were priests, and by law, they could extract a tithe. Melchizedek had neither. He didn't have the birthright, it didn't exist yet. And he didn't have the law. It didn't exist yet either. He had no authority, no foundation for being a priest and for demanding a tribute from Abraham. And yet Abraham gave him one and submitted to him as his priest. Received a blessing and gave a tenth of the spoils. I mean, the bottom line is that Melchizedek is obviously superior to Abraham, to the whole Abrahamic system to everything that came after Abraham, everything that came from him, including the whole Levitical system and Levi and Aaron and all of these key players have even in a sense, he says in, in verse 90, one might even say that Levi himself paid tithes to Melchizedek in Abraham. 
Melchizedek is obviously superior to Abraham because all the key players have put themselves into submission under Melchizedek. Now, what does all that have to do with Jesus? Well, we're, like I said, we're going to dig into the theological implications of it next week. Because in the rest of chapter 7, the author spells out how since Jesus is part of a greater priestly line, he guarantees a greater covenant hope and offers a greater priestly sacrifice. All very important things to us who call ourselves Christians. In this passage, he's setting the foundation for that argument. But for us today... What the author of Hebrews is doing as he sets up this, sets this foundation for Jesus as a great high priest in the order of Melchizedek is he's, separ- he's separating for us the shadow from the substance, making sure we can distinguish the one from the other. He's introduced for us a king of righteousness, of rightness, of justice, and a king of peace. And then he said, this guy is a shadow of the true king to come. There is a greater king. Actually comes through in this passage and then kind of back in the Genesis story. If you notice verse 7, the author said, it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Everybody agrees. To give a blessing, blessings go down from the superior to the inferior. You convey them down. You can't convey them up. Melchizedek is obviously greater than uh, Abraham. But in in the Genesis story, what happens is, so Abraham, he goes, you know, he recaptures, slaughters the kings, whatever, brings back all of the goods, all of the people, and it is his right by essentially what is the mercenary law of the time, it's his right to keep all of the stuff. Send the people home, keep the stuff. So he's well within his rights to give a tenth of it, to apportion a tenth of the spoils to Melchizedek. But the king of Sodom shows up and he says, hey, keep all the stuff, just send the people back. He's not being generous, that's normal. And Abraham says, no, you take the stuff. I don't want you to be able to say, you're the one who made me rich. You're not the one who protected me. You're not the one who rewards me. I have lifted my hand to God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, Abraham says. I will not be made rich by you. And the very next story is God showing up to Abraham and saying, Abraham, I'm the one who defends you. I'm the one who rewards you. I am your shield and your very great reward. Your reward will be great. I am going to promise right now in this covenant ceremony that I will be your shield and I will be your reward. And then there's another covenant that comes just a few chapters later which God says, look at this land that you've wandered over. Your descendants will own all of it. You will possess all of it. And through you will come a blessing, a greater blessing that will bless everyone. All nations on earth will be blessed by you. The author of Hebrews is reading Genesis and he's thinking about Jesus and he's seeing all the promises in Genesis coming true in Jesus And he sees in Melchizedek a shadow, a picture of Jesus to come, the the true king of righteousness, the true king of peace, the one who is truly uncreated, eternally existing, king of peace and righteousness, who lives and serves forever as a priest, as the great high priest mediating between God and mankind. Melchizedek, it's just a hint. What he was 
by name. Jesus is by nature. What Melchizedek was by interpretation, Jesus is by who he is. He is the king of righteousness, not just because he rules rightly, but because he is righteousness itself. He is the king of peace, not just because he brings peace, but because he is peace himself. And it's only coming to the true king of righteousness, the true king of peace, our king who can save to the uttermost that we will find the peace and the rightness that our souls crave. In this Advent season, we long for the return of Christ, our king. But we get swept up in all the rival visions of the good life that are all around us. Yesterday, we were at Target walking by, and I saw a Nintendo Entertainment System Classic Edition sitting on a sock display all by itself. And I grabbed it immediately, and I said, I don't know how much this costs, but I am buying it. Nintendo came out with them two years ago. They didn't make enough. And so people were buying them and selling them on eBay for 250, 300 bucks. And I, I, couldn't, I couldn't justify spending that much money as much as I wanted to and tried. Uh, so I've been keeping an eye on them. Like Amazon doesn't have them, and Target doesn't have them. And then I see one, right? And this, this thing is classic. It's got 30 games on it. It's got the classic controller. It's got all my favorites, Super Mario Brothers, Super Mario Brothers 3, Excite Bike, Super C, the best. And, and, and I, I was like, you know what? doesn't matter what it costs. I'm buying it. And it turns out you too can have eternal happiness for only $60. And if this sermon isn't any good, that's fine. Blame the Nintendo because I had so much fun playing last night with this dopey, nostalgic grin on my face. Jenna came home and I was sitting cross-legged on the floor with a little controller staring up at the TV. Like, I haven't played this game in 20 years. And I still am awesome at it. And Jenna dies every 20 seconds. Um, But that's not really important. But uh, the dopamine hit that I got from buying it. Like I, I, I literally, so I bought it at Target and I sat down in the Starbucks and opened the box. I was so excited. But it wore off pretty fast. I was in the car on the way home when I started thinking about how it could be better. You know, it only has one controller. If it had two, that would be better. I would be happier. It only has 30 games, but if it had all 700... I would be 23 times happier. Uh, it, it didn't, the, the hit wore off pretty fast. Stuff doesn't satisfy, especially not when your brother-in-law points out that he has the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Stuff doesn't satisfy. It, it never will. Uh, getting more of it won't, bring us peace. I know we know this because we keep going and buying more every day. It wears off. And we got to go back to Target or back to the mall or back to Amazon or back to wherever to get another uh, little dopamine click. And then we get it and we feel so good. And then it shows up and we feel even better. And then it wears off. And the next day we have to buy another thing. What the author of Hebrews is hinting at for us, telling us, look, you, you can have peace and rightness by being under the king of peace and the king of righteousness. To have Jesus is to have peace. Now, I don't mean 
to have peace in the sense that all of our external circumstances are arranged advantageously towards us to the, to the point where our internal disposition is positive. In other words, everything's working out great. That's not what I mean. That will happen someday when he returns again as king, but for right now, we can have the peace of knowing that we are right with God through him, right with one another, right with the world around us. We can be at peace that we have the only thing, the only one, the only person who doesn't wear off tomorrow. Let's pray. God, you have given us the offer of peace. In the provision of the heaven-born Prince of Peace, the Son of Righteousness, you have given us the opportunity to live within the contentment that you give us by being your son or your daughter. Father, we are drawn to so many beautiful pictures of what we could be and of what this world could be, what, what we could be in it, and, and they... they they're so attractive and they draw us and yet they leave us empty over and over and over and over and over again and you never do. Father, help us to come to you through Jesus, through the King of righteousness, the King of peace and find in him, in you, through him, the peace our souls were made for. In Jesus' name, amen.